Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the band Phil Graves. And we're going to be talking about cinema, yes, film, celluloid, both in the local repertory world and the digital and the occasional new release. Yep. That being this week, James Gray's Ad Astra, the Brad Pitt vehicle set in space. Later when we cast our mind back, we're going to be talking about two luminaries of British visual culture. Anarchic, visionary, (laughs) beloved and hated equally. They took on contemporary morality, philosophy, history, culture, global politics, pastiching documentary and theatre, theory, form and content. To make truly subversive and always resonant art, it's Eric Idle and Peter Watkins. We're going to be talking about The Ruttles, All You Need Is Cash, which was screening at the BFI as part of the Monty Python semi-centenary. Yeah. Retrospective. Yeah, and we're just going to be dipping our toes into a few of the films of Peter Watkins, Culloden, Punishment Park, The Commune, and The War Game. The letterbox account is going to look very legit. Uh, Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. It's looking good. Okay, so this September, yeah, marks the fiftieth anniversary of Monty Python's Flying Circus first being screened on British televisions. Yeah. Which is pretty significant. So they're showing a bunch of TV shows at the BFI. And quite a few films as well that those legends, John Cleese, Graham Chapman, etc. were all involved with. Including Time Bandits, Jabberwocky. Yeah, Fish Called Wonder. Yeah. John Cleese and who was it, Michael Palin. Yeah, he's in that as well. There's this film called The Missionary that I've never heard of. It looks quite jokes. I want to see that. Um, when I saw Eric the Viking in this programme, I thought that looks interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that before. Um, you said it's like a kid's film. Yeah. So is Time Bandits, essentially. Also, like, obviously, Monty Python, The Holy Grail. Yeah, all the big ones. Yeah. Special events this season's been programmed by Justin Johnson and Dick Fiddy. Shout out that guy. <laughs> Especially for putting on this huge event, rarely seen in UK cinemas. Sadly, it was only in NFT3, and it sold out before I got a chance to get a ticket. Screening with film and a phenomenon that I've just been totally obsessed with recently. That is The Ruttles, All You Need Is Cash. And they also screened an episode of Rutland Weekend Television. Oh, yeah. So that's Eric Idle's post-Flying Circus sketch show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's where the Ruttles came from. Yeah. Rutland, the smallest county in England. The Ruttles have been on tour. They played at the Garage quite recently. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like lots of places. I guess it's Neil Innes, who was in like the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band and stuff. Yeah, I was watching some videos of them and they were pretty wild from the mid-60s. That first album, my friend Tom. Shout out, Tom. Yeah. Um, he was putting me on to the Bonzo band actually after we saw Yola Tengo really and they ended their show they always do covers and at the end they were like oh last time we were in the UK we played as Yoko Ono's backing band <laughs> so we'd like to pay tribute to her tonight <laughs> in this way and then they played Let's Be Natural by The Rolls. wow yeah I mean I've been obsessed with The Rolls all summer that I think it's so jokes in this episode you'll hear quite a few Phil Graves interpolations yeah of Little Beatles covers. interpolations yeah but Neil Yen is fucking killed it with the songwriting oh yeah so the bonzo dog doodah about it's like captain beefheart or something yeah posh Ivor cutler as well yeah it's yeah. really weird okay they were big though really and he was really good friends with george harrison right is that right who loved the roles the film fair the guy that played george harrison's Stig. like anal- yeah. analog in this is um was he in the beach boys was i it? think i read yeah he was in the beach boys yeah. I didn't know that. I was like, oh, geez, the George Harrison character hasn't had a lot to say. And then it's like, oh, he took a four-year vow of silence yeah, in 1966. Yeah. But he says a lot through his hilarious guitar solos. So bad. Definitely not George Harrison at his prime. But the Love Life one in particular is, makes me right. cackle. <laughs> yeah. So the plot of the film is basically, part of it is Eric Idle as a reporter character presenting like the history of the Ruttles. And then the rest of it is cutaways to their films which are parodies of you know help and a hard day's night yeah you got ouch got yellow submarine sandwich yeah <laughs> the parody songs are good i guess like musical films i like oh. the beatles a lot but like i don't know any sort of i think like the music with walk hard 
it's actually created from like a loving perspective you know like you can tell Neil Innes really likes the Beatles I feel like his approach to writing like comedy versions is to just load them with cliches yeah. to the point of absurdity Walk Hard John C. Riley spent more time like writing and recording the soundtrack album getting like the Beach Boys sound perfect than he did like filming and mm. scripting the film I'm a bit of a sucker for this I like uh, Pop Star as well I think that's a good film yeah again I it's funny, but I was pretty in, in The Royals is the gold standard. I do like This Is Spinal Tap, obviously. Mm-hmm. Of course. Goes with that saying. Mm, I don't know why I'd consider that different, though. A mighty wind. Maybe because there's just like a good continuity between the performance of those characters and then their like stage. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah for sure. Like the Ruttles Spinal Tap have been on tour quite a few times. Played yeah, at like Wembley yeah. Arena. Well, it's a cash cow, isn't it? Like, But The Royals was 78. And I think it's interesting because this is like a parody of something that completely precipitated like the VH1 music documentary. Mm. Or you watch the like Ron Howard Beatles documentary and it covers all the same ground. Mm. I mean, there's, I guess, because of what Eric Idle's doing in it, as the reporter character, mm. they're sending up like media reporting as, as much as... They're not like satirising the Beatles, really. They're like spoofing it, but it's more like a vehicle for just like this joke's form. Definitely. I mean, he started out making a comedy film about a bad documentary maker who's always like now to London mm. and now back yeah, to yeah that's the funniest shit in the film now for back me. to New York yeah <laughs> that is that is the funniest when he gets run over at the end on Abbey Road and at the beginning he's like walking along and the camera's panning along with him yeah, yeah and then it's like it starts outpacing him and he's like chasing it he's just like very Python-esque like visual gags he's well. trying to do but yeah it is quite like a continuation of Eric Idle bits in the Python shows or in like and now yeah and a lot different. of like City wordplay. Definitely. I loved the, the bit where I said, the press seized the wrong end of the stick and proceeded to beat around the bush with it. <laughs> it's that kind of stuff I love. And the bit when he's trying to do Vox Pops on the street and he's like asking this woman, like, do you know the Rottles? Who were the Rottles? And then she's like, no, I don't know the Rottles. And then... Turns out she does, though, because everyone does. And like, yeah, and she would have been way better at... I love the interviewing Mick Jagger and he's clearly just talking, telling stories about the Beatles. But... <laughs> yeah. And he looks wild as fuck. As well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, like... definitely, definitely. Yeah. Did you love it? Yeah, as I said, I think what I didn't like about it was nothing to do with it, really. It's more to do with, like, it's hard to get right for me, maybe. Mm. And, like, spoofs or, like, parody films as well. Like, I have quite a low tolerance for it. However, there's a lot to love about it. You this know. is one of those films, like Airplane, where there's a joke every, like, 15, 20 seconds. Yeah, very much so. Loads of little throwaway bits. Yeah, as I said, some are more Pythoness than others. There's a bit um, where one, the drama character is meant to be getting married. Barry Wong. Yeah, and then um, he's... You know, he ends up marrying the wrong person and it's all, like, shot in that classic, like, fast-forward. It's hard to express this. <laughs> when you see the love of your life go off in the arms of four Scotsmen from Hull, is the name of Barry Wom's first. I'll try not to spoil too many jokes from this film because it really is no, worth seeing. No, because, as you said, though, they're, like, thick and fast. Yes, so jokes. Neil Innes plays nasty. He's, like, the clueless, like, John Lennon type when he said he was bigger than God. And then people started buying more Ruttles records just to burn them. And then, yeah. He said, no, I just said we were bigger than Rod Stewart. <laughs> so many moments. And much like our man Peter Watkins, it is satirising emerging documentary forms, the monoform, if you will, which yeah. we'll return to chat about. And that's like the thing with um, the reporter character, where it's just like so ridiculous, the way that, it works. <laughs> you know, this form of communication works. I like the... The tea sequence where they just get really on tea and that opens their mind. Oh, opens yeah. Up. The tea craze has begun and then it's lots of, like, you know... Old people drinking tea. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, I'll tell you the truth, I have had tea. Lots of it. <laughs> um, the Ouija board, going to Bogner Regis or whatever. Arthur Sultan, the sorry mystic. Yeah, he <laughs> takes him there. <laughs> Tapping on table. Le Garçon de la Plage. I love that. That exists as well. What rot sounds? Um, the the Rottles did a cover album of like this album that was made to sound like Pet Sounds by the right. the Les Garçons de la Plage, yeah. <laughs> and then they recorded it it's called Rut Sounds. So it's like Pet Sounds played by the Beatles. Wow, it's pretty cool. It's on YouTube. You should... Yeah, fuck, I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, the use of cliches is just brilliant. I think in all the songwriting and like musical cliches as well. I'm talking about like it's looking good. That like riff in that is bad, yeah. stupid. In the same way that, like, Day Trip, where you've got that thing going on the whole time. like The like music that. is really, really, really well done, yeah. for sure. My favourite tune, Cheese and Onions, off Yellow Submarine Sandwich. I want to shout out for the, the Tarkovsky reference. Did you clock that? No. Nah. In um, Ouch, 
Yeah. Just like help. Shot on location in Switzerland with yeah. the palm trees. and I mean, help, I haven't seen it in years, but I guess it would have understood to be mad racist. They sort of satirised that in a slightly tasteless way. As I was saying, they're trading on all these cliches, and he says, uh, something, something from the start, but now it seems to upset the apple cart. And then it cuts to a horse on a beach with the apples, and they spill out, just like in the dream sequence in Ivan's childhood. Right, yeah, I did not clock this at all. Very dope. And, um, wait, so... Oh, no, I guess that was probably quite old by that point. It was probably been around for about it's been like 15, 15 years, years. And it probably would have been pretty popular, I yeah. think. Super dope. Love that there are shit. probably loads of other little little bits. There are lots of, like, headlines that flash up as, the, you know, the way of, like, presenting the documentary form. Um, I'm sure there are loads of little jokes that, like, I just... If you like the Beatles, you'll love the Rottles. If you hate the Beatles, but you know about them, you may still <laughs> love the Rottles. Yeah. I'm probably going to bang out this film a few more times this year. I just can't get enough. I'll listen to yeah. Oh, it's also worth saying that, I mean, it's a TV film yeah. and um, it's only like an hour 15 or something like that. Yeah. It's very pithy. All you need is cash. <laughs> worth checking out. Definitely. Stay tuned into Film Grays. We're going to talk about Ad Astra, the new film by James Gray, starring Brad Pitt. So the new release that we're looking at this week is Ad Astra, the new film from James Gray. Yes. His last film was The Lost City of Z or Z. Or he lives. Yeah. <laughs> Which is based on a biography of the British surveyor, explorer, Percy Fawcett. Yeah, that was based on a really popular book, actually. Yeah, which is meant to be really... Inaccurate. Bad <laughs> as, as a historical text. Cool. But it was definitely his biggest budget film um, yeah, for before sure. that he'd made quite a few films with Joaquin Phoenix Two Lovers The Immigrant We Own the Night which is brilliant The Yards and he's definitely sort of known as a classical filmmaker yeah coming from a, I guess like a crime film background as well and mm. then moving into these sort of schmaltzy looking romancy periody like yeah but The Lost City of Zed I think was like a big turn away from that sort of material towards grandiloquence yeah, for sure. Like in exploring. Well, I don't know. It seems like he's trying to explore interesting themes, but I don't know whether he actually is. I think he just thinks it's a cool story. All right, anyway, there. all right, there, any- Russell. All right, any- all right. <laughs> anyway, I I only saw the Lost City of Zed on a plane, and it really moved me. Not just because I had owls or whatever they talk about. Yeah, but I thought it was a really beautiful film, just in terms it is. of the. It's a ravishing film. The grandeur, like, David know, Lean. Like, what, are you t- what are you telling them? You know, like this kind of stuff. <sighs> well, it's about like the coolest thing you could show is impossible stuff, and he doesn't show it, but he makes you believe that the possibility of that. The Lost City of Z is like set between London, where Fawcett's wife, played by Sienna Miller, is waiting for him with his family, and the Amazon. Um, he's meant to be in Bolivia. They shot it in Colombia, I believe. Right. So, yeah, it's about him, like, trying to discover this ancient civilization. The Royal Geographical Society in London doesn't believe existed because if it did exist, it would, like, disprove the idea of, like, civilization. Yeah, it was, like, challenging, like, anthropological, like, scientific norms in the yeah. period. It's set in the early 20th century. World War One. Yeah, I, th- I think World his War first commission is in, like, 1996 or something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, it is a good film. I would say, is it Charlie... Is it Hunnam or Hunnam? Hunnam. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He plays Percy Fawcett and, you know, his accent is... I've said before how, like, (laughs) I take it for granted as something that, like, is natural. Sure. Even, like, we're talking about these films, like, non-actors a lot of the time. Okay, yeah. (laughs) And, like, I just take it for granted. Yeah, I don't know. It's really... His accent is problematic, but it's interesting, like, he's a northern guy, I think he's from Newcastle, mm. and he's playing, like, a military guy who's struggling with class hierarchies in the time, which is interesting. Mm. But, I don't know, it's a, it's a distractingly bad performance, I think, unfortunately. It's as bad a performance as Robert Pattinson's performance is good. I mean, we're recording this episode in my house, and as we always do, we've got to shout out our Pattinson, seemingly. Yeah. Um, he is excellent. He's great, and He it? plays his, like, assistant. Yeah, in fact, he's introduced in a really weird way. 
the main explorer character has been like set off on this commission yeah. and then Arpat's like sneaks out of the shadows on this transatlantic ferry. It's a really, I think it's a really bizarre scene. Both times I've watched this film, it doesn't play as like natural to me. It's like he's being spied, like being spied on, yeah. like some like something wider, but it's literally. He's just a peculiar character. But he's not really throughout it. It definitely he's is to compared be like, to Percy. You know, Percy. like loyal and stoic. But he's weird. He's got glasses. He's got like a weird curly <laughs> beard. <laughs> Oh, I really love I love love that performance. I really like the Lost City of Zed. I just want to say um, it affected me. I thought it was beautiful, and even more having watched Ad Astra, which has a similar theme about faith in like something that's unbelievable that isn't necessarily theological. There are some theological elements in Ad Astra, I'd say, but I know what you mean. It's like about like the striving and like the journey, like for discovery and like. Should we, should meaning, we want to Ad Astra? Meaning or whatever, yeah, yeah, for sure. So Ad Astra takes place in the near future, but it definitely takes place in a projection based off if our current society were to run out of resources or whatever and just have to, like, explore space and colonise space. Um, and it's a fully, like, capitalist, bureaucratic space travel thing. Yeah, like Subway on the Moon. <sighs> The moon is like a territory that's competed for one of the best sequences in the film is a sort of space pirate shootout, you know, because it's a disputed territory. Yeah, it's like Earth, you know, like these sheltered enclaves of consumerism and then outside it, just a battle for resources and allocation. You know? That's what it's all about, like, I guess. Yeah, you know? And like this is represented really well. And yeah, as you said, that scene is... Well, I was writing these little notes before, I was like, it was a perfect sequence nice. for what it's trying to achieve. The sound is crazy, um, mm. like super compressed. It like, it as they're like, of, um, it's like a car chase, basically. It reminded me of Mad Max Fury Road, I guess, in terms of the shooting, you know. Yeah, super dynamic and like yeah. kinetic. Yeah, but yeah. But also yeah. taking place in a space, like a or a non a yeah, non space. Yeah, yeah, exactly, for sure. A desert space. But yeah, that's just one of many fantastic sequences. Oh man, should we talk about more action sequences before we get into like the philosophical agenda just... or meat of the film. Yeah. Let's describe the premise right now. <laughs> right. Okay. Brad Pitt plays the main character who's in pretty much every sequence. Yeah. What's his name? I have no idea. Yeah, fair enough. Psh, doesn't matter. He's man, you know. Man, man. Um, And his dad, who's like man senior, played by Tommy Lee Old Jones. Old man, yeah. Old man. Look at his life. He went into space in the past. He's like a pioneering explorer of space who's gone to the furthest reaches of our solar system to try and discover intelligent life. I'm still a bit salty that they took Pluto off the sort of official sort of <laughs> yeah, solar wait, system. Yeah, where is he? Neptune? He's in Neptune, yeah. yeah in, okay. And they don't they don't mention Uranus once in this Yeah, film. I mean, come on. They just, come it, on, it happens to be like orbiting on the <laughs> other side or whatever. Yeah. They could have got away with it as well from the tone, you know. The bit with Natasha Leon made me really crease from like American Pie, Russian Doll. She's in it in a pretty humorous Welcome to Mars, sign this form sequence, which I really liked. But, like, otherwise the tone was pretty nicely maintained, I thought. They could have said Uranus or Uranus, and I would have yeah. not even laughed. Anyway, he's a jaded astronaut. In the first sequence, he falls to Earth from, like, this crazy, like, space oh, tower that's, like, I don't know, a few miles More than that. Space. Like, it's in, like, the ozone. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah, up yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something sphere. You know, they're, like, alienated from Earth. So yeah. when he starts plummeting, it's insanely intense. It is insanely intense. It also ethers the film gravity within, like, the first five minutes, because that's just, yeah. like, the whole film is her falling, and that's just, like, the first five minutes of the film. I just want to shout out Felix Baumgartner. This sequence reminded me of this guy. He was, like, the Red Bull guy who did that, who fell from space, like, just with a parachute. <laughs> what? Yeah, and you can watch that shit. It's on YouTube. I remember watching it live. Right, and then well, when you can he landed, find that in the description. And then when he landed, he said, I wish Justin Bieber did that and I had cut his parachute before or something. That, <laughs> what the fuck? That was the first thing he said when he came back to Earth from landing from space. Anyway, so he, yeah, so he falls like miles. And this is the beginning of the film. You know he's the main character and he's not going to die right at the beginning, but it's still insanely intense. He's going to be bare traumatised though. Yeah. I guess his defining characteristic Brad Pitt's character is that he's resilient and resistant to trauma or like mental affliction and a lot of the film is about he, I mean he has to do how many psych evaluations over the film probably like yeah, 20 it's mad like techno future where 
mental health is important the same way it's important now, but it's been capitalized and you know exploited to the, to the extent where like everyone has to do a psych evaluation. That is what a lot of this ponderous narration in the film, which people have compared to like the narration in the original Blade Runner, but I think it's explained and justified in this pretty upsetting, disturbing way by he's not talking to anyone. He's having to explain every disturbing thing that's happened in the film, sometimes ahead of time, sometimes after it's happened, and account for it to like superiors. And because otherwise the whole mission will be turned around and he's just going to be sent back to Earth because he's not stable mentally enough. And that's a huge concern, much like Midsummer. It's a film about the protagonist's mental health and that is like not just a theme, but the driving plot thing about a lot of what is going on in the film, which I really appreciated and was one of my favourite things about this film. Definitely. As you said, though, he also seems sort of unflappable. So these are like the moments of like catharsis where he can move away from that stoic mode of... The, like masculine colonialist and like he still, reflect he still performs that role like very effectively throughout you know and he is the lone colonialist for a lot of the film he is the john wayne gary cooper style man on a mission yeah right? huge mission yeah a very important mission. it's, mission a, it's a quest film you know like yeah. that's the the vibe futurama was in my mind a couple of times i think because that show is probably just like quite scientifically advanced so I think some of the like concepts in this film just happen to remind me of that because they were probably both heavily written by like scientifically minded people. Yeah, James Gray uh, co-wrote this with someone. Yeah, apparently I'm it was not quite sure. What the I haven't really read too much into this. But... I mean, he, co- he co-wrote it with Joseph Conrad, right? <laughs> That's who he co-wrote it with. It's an adapt. It's literally an adaptation. When he reaches the outer rim, you know, yeah. and uh, he finds uh, his dad. Finds his dad watching classic Hollywood movies in the wrong aspect ratio. <laughs> yeah. no, go on. On on he's got his notepads. And, like, instead of, like, I found this hilarious when I was watching it, rather than um, exterminate all the brutes, it's check alt data, <laughs> which I just thought was, like, such a, yeah. Damn, yeah. Classic. TJX6. Yeah. Yeah. But it is Conradian. Conrad, Conradian, um, Len, Lenian, not Leninian. Although I guess there is like, political dimension to this film, but definitely, like, Solaris is a touchstone as well maybe it's closer to the george clooney solaris than the tarkovsky one okay what other things space monkeys that sequence was so fire and i couldn't tell i think there's a thing because like this film was quite heavily interfered with it was probably it was supposed to premiere at Cannes, and then that got shelved they worked on it for a couple of months because this film has a, like a hundred million dollar budget james gray is like a classically like independent like mid-budget low-budget filmmaker i guess he had a vision but, I mean, like, in the way that Lost City of Zed feels like quite a pure film, I would argue. Quite a singular film. Even when there's the war sequence, that feels the same. But supposedly, Ad Astra, much like many classic Hollywood films, is an auteur film that is arrives at auteur status through, like, collaboration with, like, studios and budgets and stuff like mm. that. And I feel like when they step off and like, oh, we got an interceptor call from this uh, Norwegian ship, and then you just hear, like, on the voiceover, like, it's a biological research facility. <laughs> I didn't even clock that. Definitely added in post-production. They should, yeah. like, they, hopefully in the director's cut, that line of dialogue isn't in there. Did it just bait it out too much? I was screaming. There was, like, there was, like, four of us in the cinema. And I was like, oh, wow. There weren't many people in my screening, but there were a couple of particularly egregious customers on this occasion. Yeah. They chatted through non-stop it was what, so raw man what screening were you at man what cinema okay. what time call them out i'm gonna call I'm come gonna on name names what was it we ended up going to uh the shepherd's bush like west 12 one classic not cinema. not yeah, yeah yeah for sure we've seen a lot of films there so semi-pro there i saw um the hateful eight there i seem to remember i saw the departed there when i was 14 <laughs> <Bruh>. <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> yeah just these children chatting through the whole thing, man. It was so raw. They were like shining their torches. Well, this and film stuff. is not for children, is it? No, it's for no, I fucking think, philosophers, well, mate. I think, yeah, it has <laughs> much like The Souvenir, the only film you need to see this year. Yeah. This has been slightly divisive, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. between like critics and audiences. Or mm. well, audience that, been hating. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess like it is like the Terence Malick Tree of Life, also starring Brad Pitt or whatever, a lot of heavy monologue and like very ambient soundtrack they went the whole hog got but this isn't like that is it this is an action film or like a you know well it has a couple of action sequences but no but i think it has enough to propel 
you know, your nonchalant team through it, you know. It gave <laughs> like, me everything what I want, but it's definitely more interesting than exciting, I think, although it was sufficiently exciting. But it yeah. was probably my favourite film of the year, and it had a couple of, like, really exciting bits. It delivered on that level, but it delivered way more in terms of, like, having walked out of the cinema and thinking about, like, the experience, how it worked as a film, how it managed to be a satisfying film, but also, like, profound. Again, it's all about what outer space space travel does to your mental health. There's an amazing sequence where he's going from ni- for 90 days between Mars and Neptune, and he's the only person there. And the editing, it takes one of the sort of like brackage dimension or something like that. It's crazy, incredibly trippy. There's a couple of moments, like the monkey one, I was like, I'm literally enjoying this more than any viewing I've had of 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's mad. Uh, the, the transcendent sequences or whatever. But I'm pretty down. It was a more like formal, certainly more <laughs> formal than uh, Interstellar. I haven't seen it. Okay, it's a very similar film. Also pretty good. Also pretty like R shocks, like wonderful or inspired i think i missed it in the cinema and then Mm. i didn't i'm glad i saw this one in the cinema especially if it's destined to be one of these films that kind of flops and then it becomes like actually legendary which i feel like is probably going to happen what else i mean this and high life Life, yeah they've been my two of my favorite films of the year interesting and intriguing and like original films about space with good actors in it i guess they're both like incredibly psychological High Life is a bit more, um, well, it's a Claire Denis film, I guess. I mean, what maybe one of the criticisms that's been levelled at Ad Astra is that it's potentially quite a masculine film. Definitely. I mean, that's not something inherently bad. Mm. And it's, I don't think its masculinity is toxic either. It's yeah, just... You'll kill a couple you know, of women. But they're that's just like right. astronauts, you know. Yeah, exactly. They're just Yankee bureaucrats. Well, yeah, they are. They are, yeah. However, the framing device on Earth is like his relationship with his wife, you know, and it's it. I yeah. said like I Did felt like it? it was shot like a fragrance advert a lot of time. Like the narration, like didn't help in that respect. But like this, like you know, them like gliding through, like sort of like almost like sort of slow, so stylized. That's what Tree of Life is like as well, though, isn't it? You know, it's funny. Brad Pitt. I get you. Oh, like. Do you think High Life is like a counterpoint in that respect? I mean, it's also a psychological film. It's also, it's just a Claire Denis film. It's way more Julia like... Juliette Binoche's character Grisly physical High film. Life is pretty next level. Yeah, she's a witch. <laughs> she's a witch. It's actually she's, a wild film. Yeah, it's High a wild, Life. wild film. I mean, we'll probably talk about that properly at the end of the year. I guess so. When we do a roundup. I'm not going to be forgetting about Ad Astra when it comes to that, though. I really did love it. I rate James Gray. I think as a big film, it ticked all the boxes. It was interesting, well acted, well made. And even if it was a big auteur film made on a studio budget, I feel like that isn't even a question when it comes to a lot of these like franchise films. This is a story well told that I've been thinking about since I watched it. Yeah, it's an impactful film. Definitely. Really worth checking out. Especially in the cinema. Yeah, if you can see it in cinema. Brad Astra. Like it's a spectacle, you know. Definitely. Lots of set pieces and even the contemplative moments are shot in a way that invites viewing on a large scale. Anything else on that? Max Richter. What the music? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, a little bit. A bit ambient. Mm, no, I was going to say a little bit sentimental. Mm. Not that invasive though, which, I mean, it's a very emotional story, so I don't think they over-egged it with the soundtrack at all. I had a lot of criticisms about Blade Runner 2049. Uh, yeah, it's, especially about the style. Cinematography is it radically different in that respect to the original or more stylized? I don't really care about the original either, but I felt like that was more pretentious. And even though this is obviously a pretentious film about existentialism or whatever, that was maybe more aggressive in terms of how it foists its views and aesthetics upon you than Ad Astra, which is maybe just a bit more naturally wonderful. That's kind of how I felt. I thought it was proper film, proper haircuts, proper ambient tunes. Yeah, and I had a proper cinema experience in that I had to tell some children off during and after the screening. You're a proper geezer. Yeah. James Gray, <laughs> proper geezer. Mm. Uh, we'll see what you're he not does. A fan. We'll see what he does. The Spectator next. article about the last city is said, I don't know, man. Firstly, I'm not a spectator reader at no, all. No, okay, I just we don't really to, fuck with the Spectator I just article. happened to come across this article when yeah. I was reading about like the historiography of Percy Fawcett and how he what it was like as a historical figure and like how this rep- what this representation of him means. Yeah. You know, as far as I could tell from interviews, like panel discussions, interviews, James Gray selected his story. I touched on this, uh, you know, not because of his, it, he it was a literary phenomenon though. 
the non-fiction book. If I was making a film, though, about a historical subject, I certainly wouldn't take one text and run with it, you know. It doesn't seem like a academically rigorous enterprise, but nah. that's fine, because, you know, as you referred to earlier, these are studio films. It's, but it's a post-colonial studio film, it's trying to prove a point. I don't think it's post-colonial at all, unfortunately. You think it's not even I think pandering to, like, post-colonial attitudes? Fair enough. I thought oh, it was no, a pretty wonderful film and I don't need a, <laughs> a, a proper explorer from the Royal Geographical Society writing in the spectator to tell me why. Yeah, for... This, no, James no, no, Gray's no, no. beautiful film wasn't actually an accurate portrayal of being an explorer. <sighs> no, but... I'm sorry. I, I don't know Jeez. what... I don't understand what your problem with citing this is because he's saying... Because the spectator is, is a yeah, rag. Yeah, no... Yes, but... It's irrelevant insofar as if Percy Fawcett historically was, you know, an incompetent racist, as this person's research, I guess, has shown, then to present him as James Gray represents him as, you know, this idealistic Puritan of enlightenment, but without any of the fucking, you know, phrenology. Like, it seems like it's... It's a a Gear Roth of God story, you know, about a European, like, in the jungle who's, like, convinced of, like... Bruh, bruh. That's an argument about Western civilization, right? When he represents a performance of Cosi Fantuti, the opera, in the Bolivian jungle... Hmm. The film isn't interested... The film is interested in what could have existed in South America at a time and people not being able to believe that because that would like shake your conception of civilization, especially from an early 20th century European World War One globalist perspective. For sure, that is true. That is true. On the institutional level in these society meetings, like that is what the nature of detention is. Yeah. Anyway, I like these films. Yeah, I don't know why... I mean, we're probably going to cut most of this shit out about Lossy because... As far as I'm concerned, it's meant mate, to be a review of Ad Astra. As far as I'm concerned, mate, this is the last episode of Film Grays. Disgrace. <laughs> okay. Fuck you. All right. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the films of Peter Watkins. Stay tuned. <laughs> You're still listening to Film Grays. If you tuned in last week, you know we did a segment on the best feature films on iPlayer that you can watch for free. But um, we've got to apologise. We made a glaring omission. Fucked up big time. Seriously. Because there's a huge essential film on BBC iPlayer for the next three months. But we didn't clock it because it's not in the film category. Even though it's a fictional endeavour. And the first time it was shown was in the cinema. And that was in the 80s, about 20 years after it was produced. It's Peter Watkins's The War Game. And it's a really, really staggering. And we've both been investigating mm. the filmography of this real UK cinematic legend. Yeah, absolutely. He's got a pretty interesting style. We could start with his first film. Sam, you watched that. Culloden. So that came out in 1964, I believe. Yeah, it's basically, it's basically a reconstruction of the Battle of Culloden. I think using all non-actors. Mm-hmm. Right, so people from London and the South, as well as people from the Lowlands of Scotland and the Highlands, um, and people from Ireland as well to represent this, like, um, all the people that were involved in this battle. LARPing. Yeah, exactly. They're LARPing, exactly. They invented LARPing. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they were, they were LARPing before like, yeah, reconstruction. Yeah, and, like, pageants and shit. Yeah. yeah. And, like, a lot of LARPing as Jesus as well. Definitely. That's a big one. Anyway, so in this film... Half of them are LARPing as um, Scottish clan members who are about to get completely fucked up by, you know, a, a merciless um, army of, like, cannons and guns set up to basically annihilate them while they're being instructed to just stand in the middle of the field without any uh, instruction. Right. Right? It's literally crazy. They're standing there playing the bad parts while they're just getting blown apart. And this is up. when, like, Bonnie Prince Charlie This era. is, like, the... I think in the 18th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, as a medievalist, like, feudalism is like a touchy subject, but this is very much so, like, I guess you could argue the death of feudalism insofar as these people are here, um, based on ancient concept of vassalage and um, allegiance and mutual responsibility and obligation, and as well as people have been pressed into service because of, like, land, rent. Yeah, it's like farmers and children, basically... As well as like a couple of like veterans 
against the cannon of the Imperial British Army. And the last thing they expected would be a BBC news crew to walk into that 18th century battle. (laughs) But they don't seem to be that surprised that Peter Watkins is interviewing them POV. They're talking to the camera. Well, we'll get on to some of his later films later, but in this one, it's weird in that they're very much so there. The camera is very much so there. There's a lot of um, fourth wall breaking. People, like, it's a close-up and they're just, like, talking into the camera, like, really frantically, like, almost like war reporting. There's the guy that wrote the actual historical record of it. It's, like, behind, like, a wall, like, peeking over and taking notes of it. Also, it's, um... I think it's about the same runtime as the Ruttles, so, like, it's, I guess, like, a short, like, TV film, digestible, but incredibly radical. Um, Like, really visceral... The use of non-actors lends, I guess, like an authenticity to it, which is, I guess, something Watkins pushes later on in his career. I do a little bit about the commune, but, well, should I do that now? Or should, do you Go want to keep it chronological? Go straight into the commune, man. Okay, so... I really want to see it. When was it made? 2000? Yeah, so they shot it in 1999, so it's a real, like, fin like monument to the time in which it was made. Okay, so it's about the Commune in Paris in 1871, where there's a sort of monarchist restoration going on, and the people of Paris basically try to declare like a Commune or a Republic, um, while the legitimate state moves into, you know, is operating in Versailles and mounting like campaigns against the people of Paris. Like it's a, a popular Commune, you know, along the classic model like they have like people from all different backgrounds as representatives in it it's so interesting actually how um basically in terms of the production they cast loads of non-actors from uh paris different suburbs from all different socioeconomic backgrounds as well so a lot of like refugees and stuff yeah right, people yeah. from algeria yeah. um ex like pre- french colonies people from like picardy mm-hmm. and um other places in france who had large populations in Paris at the time, so there's, like, a representation of all these different people. Also, Mm. loads of women, again, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, and it's interesting how these people are asked to research it and then bring their own research to it and then Mm. improvise scenes where they're living through it and body... Like, they're very much so LARPing. So it's such a long film. In the second half of it, the wall between the representation of it and the embodiment of it blurs more, where in the second half... There are scenes of... They're still in costume. These people are talking about um, the fate of the commune while they're enacting its most dramatic moments, Mm -hmm. right? And being asked, would you participate if this was happening today? Like, while they're, like, I guess being directed at the same time to defend the barricade. And it's such 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 an interesting film. Is it? Does it have the same sort of documentary form? So the way they interrogate um, the use of media in this one, you have Versailles National TV, who yeah. are really like you know, um, you know, it's like the reactionary like station, state where, propaganda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With like a very like prim and proper like uh, presenter, he will get like an expert in or whatever, and we're watching the events of the commune play out through the film, but occasionally they'll like zone in on a TV set playing in 1870s France, Mm. like in someone's shed or like, and all the people are gathered around and it's the state propaganda. Also though, there's commune TV because right at the beginning, two characters are introduced where they introduce themselves. They're saying, I'm, I'm playing this character. She's a reporter for commune TV. So, we see it all through their eyes. They're constantly going around saying, how do you feel? How do you feel? What's, go- what's going on at the moment? Who are and, the Ruttles? Exactly. And they're um, asking these people who are like participating and embodying it, LARPing it. It's so intense. Also, you'll learn so much about it. It's, and it's so interesting the way that these people reflect on their own experiences of the modern world, modern technology, modern media, modern rights, and relate that to the late 19th century. And it's really, really interesting. I need to see it. I mean, it's spoken of as, like, one of the greatest films made in recent times. Since I've seen it, I can't stop thinking about it. More than... I mean, we just watched The War Game today because I got here and you were like, we can watch it on iPlayer. I watched Punishment Park because you told me about Peter Watkins quite recently. That was the first one I watched. That was a recommendation from Jack from Real Politic, friend of the show. Shout out. Um, Thank you. Should we do a quick rundown of what Punishment Park's about? Yes. Punishment Park takes place in a sort of alternate modern 1970s 
Yeah, thinly allegorical, like. Yeah, like in the not too distant future, where I guess in sort of Patriot Act style circumstances, put a bunch of dissidents from all types of backgrounds. Yeah, feminists, black yeah. radicals, country singers, like just everyone, you know, draft dodgers, like, Literally, you yeah. know, it's like anyone who can be even broadly interpreted by a reactionary American citizen as countercultural. They're all taken out into the desert to these camps where the first thing they have to do, the film has two strands. The first is like the interview process and this goes on simultaneously in the film with what happens like directly after to the previous group of dissidents. But first they're interviewed by this like panel of like average Americans, like reverends and housewives and industrialists and governors all these actors of the state, normal Americans. Normies, yeah. Where they're being just, like, asked the most aggressive, horrendous questions about all types of stuff, and they're just being interviewed and put under, under really stressful circumstances with guns pointed at them. Yeah, it's hard to express, like, how aggressive the scene is. And, like, you know, the characters being tried will be like, what if this was your child here? And obviously they're like, oh, like, it would never be my child, you know. It's and crazy. The acting is unbelievable, I think. Wow, yeah. I can't really think of the character names. No, nor can I, but there are a bunch. We, As you said, we followed two different parties, like, throughout the film. One of the settings is in this courtroom, as each member of this group is being tried separately, and then the other one is in the scenario. They're given the choice where you go to jail, or you go to, like, a sort of... Guantanamo Bay, yeah, like twenty dissension. year minimum sentence, sort of concentration camp. Yeah, I think that's basically the. Or you go to Punishment Park, which is this crazy game where you race <laughs> across the desert for fifty hours to this American flag. You don't have any water, and you get like a what is it, ninety minute head start. Yeah, and you don't totally. have shit, and you just got to run across the desert to that flag. And if you get to the flag, supposedly you'll be free to go. Yeah, but you're a bit also being hunted down by police and, like, National Guard or whatever. Like. Extremely violent. It's a really, really harrowing film. Like, it's hard, it's hard to express how... The ending is one of the, the most harrowing endings I think I've seen. I'm not going to spoil it, but it, it ends with the, uh, the ever-present Peter Watkins BBC documentarian, uh, <laughs> like, screaming at the top of his voice at this, like, 17-year-old army kid who, like, cannot justify anything, any of, like, the moral positions he's been forced to, like, occupy. And it's unbelievable. I guess it was banned again, right? I don't know. I mean, it's extremely provocative. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, sensational, yeah. More so than even, like, Z, the Costa Gavras film, yeah. Z, sorry. It is fictitious, but, I mean, we'll get on to the war game. We're going to do a full episode a full yeah, deep, a full deep dive this is, is in order. Dive. But we really gorged on this shit. I did. I. I mean, I watched um, in one weekend. Um, oh god! I mean, it was probably too much. Really, <laughs> the coolest shit you'll ever hear on any podcast this year. <laughs> what did I, I watched Punishment Park first because that was the one that you were like, oh, you should take it out. And then I was like, oh well, there are a bunch of ones that are like an hour long, but there's this the commune one. And I just went for it. I did have to spread it over. I watched three hours in one night. Yeah. And then it was like, you know, it was like, I started it too, I started it too late as well. You could well. watch a whole series of yeah. Sopranos in like 24 well, hours if yeah, you really yeah. wanted to. So know. I watched the rest in the morning. And then I watched them, Culloden. And then, oh, I also found, I mean, this is deeply ironic, I think, as um, I don't think Peter Watkins is going to be a huge fan of Amazon. <laughs> Surely not. Something tells me. But, um... His The Journey, Rezan, as it's also title, which is a 19-hour film about nuclear conflict. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's, it's a series on Amazon, so it's split into parts. So I've watched, like, three of them. I'm taking it pretty slowly. I can't, <sighs> can't imagine how that would be screened if it's a film. It must have been... It suits itself. We had it's, LaFleur at the ICA last week. That's 14 hours, you know. Anything is possible. Well, anyway, I'm making my way through it, but it's absolutely crazy. One yeah. day, one day. They got the Satan Tango reissue coming oh, up. Oh, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to be we're there. We're going to do that, yeah. I'm going twice. You still listen to Film Grades. And now, finally, we come to talk about The War Game, the film that is on iPlayer. Peter Watkins' second film. Yeah, a year after Culloden? Yeah. 65. Yeah. I guess a similar technique, but used in a, a documentary about the near future for instructional purposes. 
Yeah. It's a film about what would happen if a nuclear war started and Britain were bombed. Britain seemed to be a pretty huge target, I think, for missiles. Um, My mum talks about growing up in London in the 60s and just being in daily fear, honestly, the Cold War. And so there's there's a conflict. Russian troops move into West Berlin. And that starts a nuclear war. I feel like it's more about like the home front or whatever than about any sort of international... Oh, yeah, that's just the premise. Um, yeah, mm. for sure. Like, the journey, though, is really international, whereas this is... It's about, like, Dover and uh, Rochester and... These... Yeah, yeah, it's shot in Kent. Again, with non, non-actors non mm. and... Um... Good actors, though. Yeah. Really good acting in this, I thought, the way he gets out of... There's a couple of, like, recurring characters, and you see how their lives, like, fall apart and they become more and more desperate. That acting, I think, is really extraordinary. For sure, I guess, as you said, like, people had legitimate anxieties about it at the time. So I guess they were just extending that into these performances. But, I mean, it's a really harrowing scenario, and I guess, like, it's represented in... I keep using the word harrowing, but, like, it really is horrifying and really visceral. One of the scariest films I've ever seen in my life. Um, I guess it was made for instructional purposes because quite a lot of it is about how uneducated the British people were about the effects of radiation and like how to build shelters. There's a very interesting sort of economic question that comes in when the, someone who runs the sandbag shop explains like his pricing for sandbags and how much he charges to fill them up with sand versus soil. And then you see like the pathetic shelters that some people have created just because they don't know how or because they can't afford to. Yeah, and Watkins like keeps saying, like, narrating throughout, saying this is what happened in Hiroshima or Nagasaki or Dresden. Urban spaces have been like really devastated. I guess that's the that was the most upsetting thing about the film for me is that it's not even a film about nuclear war. It's a film about the state and about police states. Yeah, for the last so. fifteen minutes, you've got the police like shooting people who are going in to try and like save their not dead loved ones from being burned or like trying to like retrieve wedding rings and stuff and they're being shot or put before firing squads because they're stopping the police from doing their job and then peter watkins interjects towards the end saying all of this happened in dresden and then i guess that's why this film was in the documentary category even though it has a fictitious premise mm. i mean they're docudramas aren't they i think that he was like the pioneer of that britain becomes a police state after a nuclear war yeah straight away um they were like you know, little committees are being made and Fully like fledged. an emergency state and, as you said, ultimately a police state where they're shot like Nazis, you know. Yeah. They look like Nazis at the end. I mean, there's so many interesting questions come up. One of my favourite lines in the film was spoken by a priest where he says, you know, if you, uh, if you kill someone, like, you have to live with them. If I was to kill someone, I'd have to live with the moral responsibility of that. And if you elect a government who kills people, engages in nuclear war, then you also have to live with that responsibility, which is, you don't hear people saying that that much these days. I mean, the crises are all-encompassing, from, like, food shortages, medicine shortages. There's no-one there in the psychiatric services to provide for all the shell-shocked people, mass graves. And I think the fact that all of these things are based in fact, that's a really, really disturbing thing. I would say, again, that um, the journey, he's interrogating the exact same subject. He made that over a period of a few years, I think, in the mid-80s. And that, again, he's it's interviews with people that have been impacted by this, um, like communities, everything. So it's the same subject matter. He's like clearly something that really preoccupied him over these years. And the marriage of form and content is huge. I mean, he did as much to reinvent how people understood the documentary form with this. I mean, the reason they couldn't broadcast it on the BBC was because it was too... It's like yeah. the War of the Worlds. The Orson Welles effect, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. But I mean, a lot of people really hate Peter Watkins, right? Yeah, um, there was a thing on his website where um, it was like in the making of the commune and they're talking about trying to get funding for it. And um, there was a quote like from the BBC commissioning editor at the time and it was just like, I don't like the films of Peter Watkins. <laughs> <laughs> and they really struggled to fund it. We, however... We fucking love it. Please check out The War Game. It's on iPlayer and also research all of this stuff. Go on his website because his website is fucking brilliant. Very comprehensive. I would just quickly um, add that I feel like it's a preoccupation we've had over the episodes we've done thus far where we're talking about the relationship between form and content, mm-hmm. whether it's like Strapier or... Um, the Ruttles. 
yeah, the Rattles or, you know, Z, um, yeah. like a lot of the discourses surrounding that when it came out. We didn't really extend those to Rojo because I think the the, the landscape's really changed. Mm. But, I mean, I feel like Peter Watkins goes to show that... This is demonstrative it, filmmaking. It yeah. does exist. Like, yeah. it, I find it way more radical and profound than the films of Stropier, which I think politically are probably trying to do something quite similar, even if it's using a different parole. <laughs> but, like... And they're in English with complete, complete subtitles. You can understand every word that's being said. <laughs> yeah. Peter Watkins, yeah, we love you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Film Grays. We're going to be back real soon with a special episode, I yeah, think. Yeah, our most loco episode yet. <laughs> We're getting uh, our friend Matthew Durrell, a locomotive train driver. Yeah. The, the general. We're going to talk about the general. We're going to talk about maybe a bit about Unstoppable. Talk about the very birth of cinema. Maybe we'll talk about uh, our runaway train made by Konchalovsky, who wrote the script to Andre Rublev. <laughs> Strangers on a Train. Yeah, why not? Um, Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer. Train to Busan. Yeah. Shit, we're going to... Well, we're going to be training up for this episode. You sure will. It's going to be loco. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Lots of love.